Thanks, Jake. Um, good morning. If you're new to the bridge, my name is John Peters. I serve on the bridge leadership team. And uh, I've been speaking along with a few other guys over the past few weeks while Jerry is on a speaking break. He'll be back next week. If you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you uh, to raise your hand. I think we have a few off that the, uh, the ushers can pass out that would be helpful this morning. And so in a second, we will uh, we'll start with the video. But in the meantime, we'll dismiss the bridge kids, <laughs> as well as uh, hand out a few Bibles if you don't have one. We'll start with the video right away. Um, I will pray real briefly. Dear Father, thank you so much for bringing us together. We pray that, uh, uh, that you just bless this time in our fellowship this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Mind if we join you, old timer? Jive me, my son. Jive work for the railroad, Grandpa? I work for no man. You got a name, do you? I have no name. Well, that right there may be the reason you've had difficulty finding gainful employment. You see, in the mart of competitive commerce... You seek a great fortune. You be who are nigh in change. You will find a fortune. Though it would not be the fortune you seek. But first... First, you must travel a long and difficult road, a road fraught with peril. Mm -hmm. You shall see things wonderful to tell. You shall see a, a cow on the roof of a cotton house. <laughs> and oh, so many startlements. I cannot tell you how long this road shall be, but fear not the obstacles in your path. For fate has vouchsafed your reward, though the road may wind. Yea, you hearts grow weary, still shall ye follow the way, even unto your salvation. We've been looking at one of the most well-known stories that Jesus ever told, found in Luke 15. Most commonly known as the parable of the prodigal son, last week I rephrased it with the question, O true brother, where art thou? A simple takeoff on, on this well-known Coen Brothers film from 2000, of which the video clip we watched is from. The Coen Brothers as film directors are great storytellers. And that two-hour movie is a compelling story set in the Deep South in the 1930s. It's about flawed characters, three escaped convicts, in bondage as prisoners who are seeking freedom and fortune. But the fortune they sought, as the blind prophet in that clip tells them, the fortune they sought buried treasure 
is not the one that they would find. They were in need of redemption and seeking reconciliation. It's not a Christian film, whatever your definition of that might be. To me, that means there's usually a Kirk Cameron appearance. And the directors are not Christ followers, to the best of my knowledge. But the universal themes that they present of freedom, redemption, reconciliation. It's interesting to see how those themes are found in the most compelling stories, intentionally or not, and how they echo the ultimate story God has told in his word and continues to tell. Jesus is the great storyteller, and the compelling story he tells in Luke 15 doesn't take hours, he tells it in a matter of minutes. It's a story about flawed characters, two brothers, in bondage to sin who are seeking freedom and fortune of their own, their father's inheritance. But the fortune that they seek is not what they need as well. They too need redemption and reconciliation with their father. Now to briefly recap last week if you weren't here, we looked at that story within the larger context of Luke 15. And what we saw was that that story was the last in a series of three stories that Jesus tells. The first story was about a lost sheep. And somebody goes out, finds it, brings it back, and they celebrate. The second story in Luke 15 was about a lost coin. A woman goes out, searches for it, finds it, and celebrates. And we come to the third story. There's a lost son. The Jewish man broke outside of Israel in a foreign country feeding pigs. He's lost. But then there's a change in the pattern. Nobody goes out to search for the lost younger son. This is a point highlighted by some devotional writers that I've been reading, Ed, Edmund Clowney, Tim Keller, and it's impacted my understanding of this parable, this omission that nobody goes out to seek the lost younger brother, this change or plot twist, this turn in the story is intentional on Jesus' part as he tells it to his audience. And he, he does this to challenge them. And the one who the audience would be expecting to go out and search for the lost younger son is the elder brother. But the other brother does not. It would have cost him greatly. I like the way another storyteller, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, talks about the significance of a turn in a story. And so I'll put that up on the screen here. But what he says is, it's the mark of a good story of the higher or more complete kind that however wild its events, however fantastic or terrible the adventures, it can give a child or man who hears it when the turn comes, when the turn comes, a catch of the breath, a beat and lifting of the heart, near to or indeed accompanied by tears, as keen as that given by any form of literary art and having a peculiar quality in such stories, when the sudden turn comes, comes a, we get a piercing glimpse of joy and heart's desire 
that for a moment passes outside the frame, rends indeed the very web of story, and lets a gleam come through. The lack of the elder brother searching out the lost younger brother, I contend, is the turn in the story that Jesus tells. It shows the flawed elder brother. And again, from last week, the significance of highlighting this, a quote we showed from Tim Keller, he says, by putting a flawed elder brother in the story, Jesus is inviting us to yearn for a true one. Or, as the question I've been posing, O true brother, where art thou? As it turns out, he was the one telling the story. The person they would have been expecting in this story, a true older brother who lives up to his role and responsibilities, is the one living out the parable in front of them in Luke 15, as Jesus tells this. So what they were missing in the story, they could find in real life in front of them. Jesus as their true older brother, and our true older brother, that though we were lost, he came and sought us out to reconcile us with the Father. So now you're up to speed. If you weren't here last week, you are now up to speed. If you were, hopefully that's a message that's even, even all the more clear now. We've highlighted Jesus is the true brother. This week, let's go back into the story in Luke 15, beginning in verse 11. I know, same passage, two weeks in a row. We'll get to go back in and take a closer look at the two flawed brothers that we only briefly looked at before. Now, the two brothers are both lost. They're lost in different ways. They were both seeking happiness, fulfillment, self-worth. The younger brother, through pleasure and self-discovery. The older brother, by following a set of rules and feeling morally superior to others. But the implication is clear. You can be lost and alienated from the father by either openly rebelling against him, what we might call irreligion, or trying to fulfill a list of rules you think will earn favor with him. Religion. So on the one hand, the brothers, the, the younger and elder brother, were on opposite ends of a spectrum. But on the other hand, they were surprisingly similar. They both resented the father and his authority in place. Neither one loved the father for who he was. So we'll turn back into the parable. Luke 15, beginning in verse 11. Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. Sound familiar? The younger one said to the father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So the father divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the land and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything to eat. 
Pause. Audience expectation. Someone might go out and find him. Well, here's the turn. Nobody does. Continuing on in 17, when he, the younger brother, came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to the father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. a few slides of some artistic renditions of the lost son. This is the lost son painted by Rembrandt, 1634. It turns out actually to be a self-portrait of himself and his wife, which is interesting. Here's a few more sketches that we'll go through about five or six here. Okay, and we'll We'll stay right there for a second. The lost son is a character that so many identify with, either as having been a prodigal with wild living or perhaps being the parent of a prodigal. And a significant amount of art and literature and devotional material uh, is reflected on the lost son and how that story resonates with so many people, and rightly so. But since there's so much material written about that part of the story, so much uh, painted and, and devotional work on that part of the story, I won't retread over that. Instead, I'll focus on the part of the story that's less well-known, the second part, that of the flawed elder brother. Because while the younger brother is the one most highlighted, I contend Jesus' main point in this story was centered on the older brother and what he didn't do. Now, by the time the story ends, the younger brother has actually reconciled with the father. But the older brother, there's no resolution there. We don't know if he ever goes into the feast. So, we'll, in fact, when we take a look at some other pictures and we try to find some portrayals of the other brother, it's only, in fact, we'll go through the next few slides. See the older brother standing off to the side, the older brother back in the distance. Actually, we'll go back to that last one. When we even try to find material about the older brother, it's often overshadowed by the younger brother. He's off to the side. He's in the distance. There's not nearly as much material written about him or 
ex explaining or exploring his condition. So let's go back into the story, the second part in Luke 15, beginning in verse 25. The younger son has gone in. He's celebrating with the father. And we pick up in verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. And the servant said, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he, is he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But the older brother answered his father and said, look, all these years I've, I've been slaving away for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you, ne you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when, but when this young son of yours, he doesn't even claim him as a brother, he says, when this young son of yours who has squandered your wealth with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Father replied, my son, you were always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now the older brother seems to have been the dutiful one, the responsible, responsible one in, in contrast to his younger brother. The older brother would have seemed good by conventional standards. Yet both brothers were alienated from their father. The bad son entered the feast at the end. The good son had not. This is certainly a reversal of what the Pharisees would have been expecting. So let's take a look. What can we observe about the older brother? What are the roots? Number two, what are the roots and attitudes and implications of older brother thinking? And number three, what's the answer to elder brother attitudes and living? So first, let's look at uh, what can we observe by taking a closer look at the older brother? Why doesn't he go into the feast? Why is he alienated from the father? Well, if we return to verse 28, it says, The older brother immediately became angry when he heard about how his younger, his younger brother had been welcome back in. Well, why is he so angry with the father? To some degree, he felt like he had the right to tell the father how his robe and riches and rings and livestock should be deployed. So we find a bitter and angry and resentful older brother. And he immediately compares himself to others. And these are classic elder brother traits. Anger, Bitterness, resentment, comparison. And what are some of the roots of these attitudes, of these destructive attitudes? Well, the first thing we see is that the foundation of his seemingly dutiful work for his father was not out of love for his father, but it was works-oriented, that he could earn favor with his father and that someday later, he would receive all this blessing back because of his good deeds. In verse 29, he says, 
all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. He immediately starts to list off works that he's done for the Father. And no doubt one day is expecting reward for. He was not working for the Father because he loved the Father. He was working so that he would be rewarded. It was a means to an end. It was a means to try to control his father. And when that didn't work out how he planned, he was angry, he was bitter, and he had a great deal of resentment. The attitude that we should be blessed because of our moral actions and works that we add up onto a list. He had the attitude that God owed him, or the Father in this case owed him, blessings for his good deeds. And competitive comparison is another key feature of flawed elder brother attitudes. We see it with the elder brother on a personal level. When he sees somebody else that gets blessed, in this case his younger brother, who he doesn't think of as, as good as him, who he doesn't think of as, as responsible as him. He sees somebody getting something that he thinks they don't deserve because their works don't compare to his. And he gets angry. And he gets bitter. And on a personal level, elder brother thinking can lead to people setting up moral standards that when they can't live up to their own moral standards of works that they should be doing, they beat themselves up. And so there's this gravitation between resenting others for any blessings they receive and self-loathing for not being able to measure up to a works-based standard that you set up. So here's my challenge and encouragement. If you, like Rembrandt, in one of those earlier paintings, if you paint yourself into the story as the older brother, if you find yourself getting angry, getting bitter, comparing yourself to others and struggling with resentment, and I'll be the first to raise my hand at times there, if you too find yourself struggling with those elder brother mentality, that elder brother thinking, that mentality. Take a hard look and consider whether the actions you do are out of love for a God who created you, or if they're out of a works-based system of adding up some sort of uh, tally that you think in the end you will receive blessing from. One other quote that I'll mention, I think this summarizes this well, I think the next slide. Actually, okay, so we don't have that up there. I will, I'll just read this. This is a quote from Prodigal God. It says, Tim Keller says, in the same way religious people commonly live moral lives and put their 
but their goal is to, is to get leverage over God and control him, to put him in a position where they think he owes them. Therefore, despite all their ethical uh, piety, they are actually rebelling against his authority. If, like the other brother, you believe that God ought to bless you and help you because you have worked so hard to obey him and be a good person, then Jesus may be your helper, your example, even your inspiration, but he is not your savior. You're serving yourself and trying to be your own savior. And if that's you, what is the answer to elder brother thinking? The message of Jesus' parable is that both approaches, that of the younger brother, irreligion, and that of the older brother, religion, are wrong. They're both attempts at self-salvation. But his story, this parable, shows us a radical alternative, and that's the gospel. The good news is that we're even worse than we think, but we're more loved than we could ever imagine. I'd like to turn to one other passage in Ephesians 2. I think it's been touched on yet this morning. I think it, it uh, is a good summary of both the gospel and of the, of the need to rest in God's grace, not our works, for our salvation. So turning to Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 1, I'll just read this passage. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Ephesus. And he writes, You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms, in Jesus Christ, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved, through faith, not of works, not from yourself, it is, it is a gift of God, and not by works, so that no one can boast. For if we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. Just a great passage that emphasizes the need to rest in his grace, not our works, for reconciliation with the Father. Now in closing, we started out looking at a video clip from a movie set in the 30s. We will return to that era. In 1936, a Memphis blues musician named Robert Wilkins became a follower of Jesus Christ. He later went on to become a minister. And he took a song, a melody that he had written earlier in the 20s. He put new lyrics to it, and he renamed it. 
after the parable of the prodigal son. Fast forward a few decades. In 1968, a young British band named the Rolling Stones covers this song in an album called Beggar's Banquet. They forget to give him credit for the song at the time. But in any case, I suppose they would know something about wild living and wasting money and visiting prostitutes. In any case, they became a unknown ambassador for his song that he wrote that I'd like to close on. Father God, uh, we praise you for the chance to come worship. We thank you for the sending of your son to come find us in our lost and sinful state, to bring us back home, to reconcile us with you. And through him, through his work, not ours, his death on the cross, rising from the dead, through his work and your grace, we have reconciliation with you. Amen.